Welcome to Wealth and Understanding, Conversations with the Riverview Trust Company. In this series, we hope to demystify the financial and estate planning process. We'd like to help our clients and friends make informed decisions that they feel good about. In this episode, we're going to address the question, what should I know about investment theory? Now, I can't tell you how much our clients and friends just clamor for more information about investment theory. It sounds really dry, but in fact, everybody has ideas about investment theory, whether they know it or not. We all have belief systems about money and investments, and those systems affect the choices that we make. So really what we're going to try to do is bring a little bit more clarity to ideas that we already have but maybe haven't fully formed. The most important aspect to investment theory is risk. That's the most important concept. To begin with, people are generally risk-averse, and so they never take on more risk than is needed to achieve their goals. What this means is that people prefer to avoid risk more than they seek to obtain gains. What this also means is that if you are a rational investor, you should seek a risk premium for the additional risk that you take on. And what do I mean by that? Well, a risk premium is simply the amount of extra return that you have to get from an investment in order to accept a riskier investment over a safer one. So for example, if I invest in U.S. treasuries that pay 1% uh, over a given period of time, say 10 years, and there are other investments that I could choose instead, like let's say a stock fund and let's say that that stock fund pays 5% each year, the risk premium is 4%, the difference between the 1% on the safe investment and the 5% on the risky investment. So you should never assume more risk from an investment unless you get a corresponding premium to go with it. And there are two types of risk, market or systematic risk, and firm-specific or non-market risk. Let's break both of those down a little bit. Firm-specific risk is the risk of a particular company facing default. Think of uh, Enron early in the century, where the firm actually went under as a result of fraud. You can also think of dangers to a company that maybe hold real estate that turn out to be polluted, or companies that get sued for patent infringement. This is risk that is specific to one particular company. If I invest in just one stock, I'm subject to the risks that that company uh, is prone to. And this risk can be avoided through diversification. So theoretically, there is no risk premium associated with assuming firm-specific risk. And it's important to reiterate that with firm-specific risk, there is a real risk of complete loss or default. 
Market risk, on the other hand, is different. It's the risk that you assume in choosing one type of market over another. So, for example, stocks as opposed to bonds, or small cap stocks as compared to large cap stocks. Market risk, assuming different levels of market risks, does pay a risk premium of different sizes depending upon the level of risk you assume. Now, market risk is better thought of as volatility. That is, the investments, the particular investments tendency toward wider swings in value. The risk is not really one of absolute loss or default. So, for example, if I go out and invest in 40 or 50 stocks, it's, I suppose, theoretically possible that all 40 stocks will completely go out of business. But what's more likely is that the combined value of those stocks will swing in value up or down. But the, the, the value of the investment will never completely disappear. So the real risk with market risk is that the asset that I'm investing in could swing down to be to hit a very low value at a time when I need to sell that investment and raise cash to live on. So it says as much about me and my goals as it does about the nature of the asset itself. And if you look at uh, most stock indexes um, over 20 years, their performance looks pretty steady and it's, it's gradually increasing. But if you look at it over a shorter period of time, say three or four years, it can look really risky. And that's volatility. You get wider swings over a longer period of time, the more volatile an investment is. And whether that's a danger to you or not depends upon what you need the investment for. So to look at it another way, firm-specific risk is objective. It's the risk that an asset could completely disappear in value, could completely be worthless. Whereas market risk is subjective. It's the risk of a price swing occurring at a time when you can't afford for it to. The very different types of risk. The next concept in modern investment thought is how much knowledge does the market have about investments? And most current thinking is twofold. First, there's the random walk theory, and that holds that historical price movements can't predict future price movements. So what a stock, say, has done in the past in terms of price movement doesn't predict where it's going to go in the future. And the reason it's called random walk is the comparison was between a stock price and the path that a person who's drunk takes when they walk through a field. That is, if you're really drunk and you're walking in a particular pattern, you might change that pattern at a completely random time. And so I can't tell from the direction that you're walking now what direction you're going to walk in the future. I don't know what that says about investors, but there you go. The next idea uh, about what does the market know is that stock prices reflect all public information about a company. In other words, markets are efficient in terms of what all the investors know. This has two implications if it's true. 
First, researching a particular stock doesn't mean anything because everyone's done all the same research, so there's no way that you can gain a benefit from really digging into the public information about a company. And second, investors use this information to make rational, informed decisions about investments. So if you take risk and market efficiency together, the idea that all of this information is available to everyone, you can start to put together what's called modern portfolio theory. And that sounds a little esoteric, but modern portfolio theory is really important in the way that it has shaped people's thought about how they invest their money. So you take the concept of risk and you combine it with market efficiency, and it says a few things. First of all, your portfolio has to be diversified in order to avoid firm-specific risk. That's the first principle of modern portfolio theory. The second is that you choose the level of volatility that you need to accomplish your objectives, and you take only as much market risk as you need to and no more. So if you need to earn 3% on your money while you're retired, you only look for a portfolio that will generate that much and not something that generates, say, 8%, because if you go for that higher level of return, you might get it, but you also are subjecting yourself to more risk than you need. And finally, under modern portfolio theory, uh, it's hard, if not impossible, to beat the market. And this is because all investors are assumed to be rational and know the same things about their investments that everyone else knows. So investments with a higher cost, like an active managed fund, say, where you've got a manager that you're paying to pick particular stocks, have to produce greater returns to justify those costs. Uh, And they really can't. And so indexing, that is investing in passive investments, is preferred under modern portfolio theory. Now, behind modern portfolio theory, as I said, is the notion that all investors are rational. But there's a whole different school of thought that says all investors are not rational. Several financial economists have established that uh, people do things that don't really make any sense, and this has been quantified in a category called behavioral finance. And the best way to explain behavioral finance is to look at the work of Daniel Kahneman, who is a Nobel Prize-winning economist and author. He uh, broke the way that people think down into two categories. He calls System 1, which is our fast, intuitive, and emotional side of thinking, and System 2, which is our analytical side. System 1 thinking happens automatically and, in fact, involuntarily. When we see someone's face, we know if they're angry or not. If we are English speakers and we can read, we can't see the letters C-A-T and not think of the word cat. System two, on the other hand, is the type of thinking that allows us to figure out the answer to 17 times 24. And no, I don't know the answer off the top of my head. So system one doesn't require any effort. It just happens whether we want to or not. And this was designed... uh, by our primitive ancestors to assess dangerous situations as opposed to 
harmless ones, and it operates all the time. System 2, on the other hand, requires work, and it's lazy. It typically operates in low power mode, so that we only use a fraction of our analytical thought process. Also, it has trouble focusing on more than one topic. And if you are trying to diet and have a big work project due, you know that it's very difficult to do both at the same time. That's because it's hard for System 2 to tell you not to go have a brownie and to do a complicated math problem. So these two systems, which usually work together actually pretty well for us, occasionally conflict with each other. And it happens with investments because we rely on what are called heuristics or rules of thumb that are developed by our system one thinking and that system two doesn't step into uh, override. So what does that mean? Let me give you some examples of heuristics of rules of thumb that we use that give us bad results in the investing world. First, there's overconfidence, which can lead to a number of different mistakes. The most obvious example of this is the better than average effect. And that's been demonstrated that most people think, for example, that they are better than average drivers, like 80% of people think that, that they're better than average drivers, which obviously is not possible. And there's an illusion of knowledge that comes from overconfidence. So we, we all know that if you throw a six-sided dice, the odds of any one number coming up is one in six. But there's a number of studies that have shown that if people doing the predicting are told that the number four has come up on the previous three rolls, many of them will assume that the odds are either higher or lower than one in six for the number four to come up again. And this is despite the fact that it's obvious that every throw of a dice is completely independent of the prior one. Another way in which our rules of thumb get in our way of investing smartly is through pride and regret. Uh, the fear of regret and the pursuing of pride results in bad decisions all the time. There's the disposition effect, which in the investment world means selling winning assets too early and holding losing investments too long. So if you want to buy a new investment, but you have no cash to do so, you have to sell one of two investments. Investment A, which let's say has increased 20% in value, or investment B, which has decreased, let's say, 20%. Selling A, the one that's increased in value, would make you proud to recognize your gain because you're so smart. Selling B, though, would cause you to realize that you made a bad choice buying it in the first place. And there's significant evidence that shows that people in that situation would sell A so that they can trigger the pride response rather than B, which would force them to face their regret. Also, the way that we perceive risk varies greatly. Past outcomes play a huge role in our thinking. People are much more likely to accept a bet if they've previously won money, in which case their bet is made using the house money in their minds than if they've previously lost, in which case that risk aversion that we talked about kicks in. So prior winners are more willing to accept a risk on a current investment, whereas the results vary for those who've just experienced investment losses. So which is true? Are markets efficient and are people rational or are people just relying on rules of thumb that are completely irrational? Uh, this debate has gone on among economists and investment types for quite a while, but I think the real answer is that both are true. 
I think in general markets do tend to move overall fairly efficiently. But I think it's also true that any one given investor can at any one given moment in time make bad decisions based upon their system one thinking, their rules of thumb. And this idea that markets are efficient and people are irrational both at the same time can be best seen in a paper delivered by John Bogle several years ago in, in 2003. Now, John Bogle was the founder and former chairman of the Vanguard Group, which is instrumental in developing the mutual fund industry. And he was looking back over the past 50 years at the time of the mutual fund efforts and noted some remarkable changes. Uh, it changed from an industry that stressed stewardship to one that stressed salesmanship and in which short-term performance was more important than long-term. And as a result of that, mutual fund managers turned over their portfolios pretty regularly with an average holding period of just 11 months. That meant that the costs of transactions reduced the return of funds. And therefore, according to Bogle, the stock market provided an annual return of 13% during the prior 20 years before he delivered the address. But the average equity mutual fund earned an annual return of just 10%, while the annual fund investor, that is the person who held those mutual funds, who bought and sold them, earned just 2%. So the market was relatively efficient, earning 13%. Fund managers, who were professionals, were driven by sales needs and pressures, and they turned over their funds a lot, which diminished the return from 13% to 10%. But then the individual people who bought the funds, bought and sold the funds, because of getting in and out of the funds at the wrong time, earned just 2%. We can also see the effects of this interplay between emotion and data in a study that was done in 1996 uh, by Ibbotson and Associates. And in that study, they looked at the performance of the S&P 500 from 1926, which is, you know, just a three years before the Great Depression, through the following 70 years until 1996. A dollar invested in the S&P 500 in 1926 would have grown to $1,114 70 years later. However, if the same dollar was invested in 1926, but the investor got out of the stock market during the 35 best months out of that period, so 35 months out of a total of 840 months, that same dollar would have grown to only $10. So to say it a different way, 99% of the growth during that period occurred during only 4% of the months in it. If you missed those months, you missed your appreciation. And you only got your $10 instead of your $1,100. This just goes to show how timing the market or getting out because of fear can devastate the return that you get that you really need to stick in for the long term and wait for those 4% of months where you see some appreciation in your portfolio. So what lessons can we learn from this little discussion on investment theory? Well, I think there's a few things that are important to bear in mind. First, markets are actually pretty predictable over long periods of time. They actually 
do seem to be fairly efficient. Information about companies tends to disseminate widely, and this is even more true now than it was, say, 50 years ago. But they're not very predictable over short periods of time. There's a lot of market volatility, particularly with stocks. Think of the Great Depression, the financial crisis, and the coronavirus pandemic. All of those incidents generated a lot of volatility and a temporary drop in value of the market. It's important to note, though, that the stock market recovered after every one of those events. The next thing to bear in mind is not to trust your impulsive reaction to markets. Do the hard system two analytical work of researching market trends and long-term performance. Don't react based upon your rules of thumb because those are built around ancestral uh, prehistoric impulses that were designed for fight or flight, not for investing. Third, and this is really important, don't listen to pundits. Don't listen to people on TV telling you how to invest or people at cocktail parties. They're entertainers. They're not experts. And in fact, they make things worse because they can tend to trigger your system one reactions, your fight or flight reactions, and make them worse rather than better. So finally, instead of focusing on fears about the market, Start by determining your goals. What do you need in retirement? What do you seek to achieve for your family and for your future? Do that through in-depth financial planning. Then fit your portfolio to those goals using what you've learned about the long-term trends. In other words, don't just react through fear, but instead react through knowledge. Don't give in to system one thinking, but Follow your system to analysis. This podcast was written and produced by Riverview Trust Company, which is solely responsible for its content. Although we've discussed generally some legal concepts, Riverview Trust Company does not provide legal advice. You should consult with your own attorney to decide whether the general ideas that we've presented in this podcast are right for you. Post-production work was done and our theme music was created by James Klein. Thanks for listening.